know, normally you'd have an episode and it'd be about boxing. Um, if you want to know what happened in the Magnificent Seven card, this isn't the episode for you. If you want to know how the Matchroom card got on with Diego Pacheco, this isn't the card for you. If you want to hear how Adam Azim got on, this probably isn't the, the show for you. Um, I can summarize it. Um, Nathan Heaney fought the, life of, fought the fight of his life. Congratulations to him. I'm not going to do him down because when Denzel won the British, I said at the time, that belt means everything to a British boxer because it means you can sit at a certain table and it means that people will always know you for what you achieved in the sport. And Nathan Heaney gets that feeling now. Uh, in terms of Denzel, I love that guy. The fact that he showed up in the ring despite everything that's going on around him is a measure of the man. Um, yeah, well, great man. There are others who wouldn't have. He he fronted up and he, he did what champions do. He... He departed with grace. He'll be frustrated and he'll be angry, but he'll be back. In the meantime, he he has other things he must attend to and, you know, look forward to seeing him back in the ring at 100%. As for Nathan Heaney, it's his journey now, and I wish him all the best. You know, I've said things about him, his fan base, and all that sort of stuff, and this isn't the time to prosecute those or to dance through those. I just wish him all the best. Um, he's, he's won the boxing lottery, um, you know, and Nathan Heaney's a kid, despite what the people try and tell you, he's a kid steeped in boxing history. He's a kid who boxed from a kid. Um, I think he lost to Robbie Davis Jr. in the ABA semifinals. He's, he's, he's a boxing kid. So he knows what that British title means and he'll be at home. Barely able to believe he has that now. So good luck to him. Onwards and upwards, he's got his journey to live now. So good luck to him. But for me, a day like this is tough because this is the anniversary of Mick passing. And every year what I do is I go for a walk. And it's almost like I compose a letter to Mick in my head and I say, this is where things are at in terms of my life, in terms of boxing, just broadly. And people will turn off at this point and I get it, but to understand anything I've ever done from a podcast perspective, from a coaching perspective, just anything I've ever done in boxing, you have to understand it all starts with Mick. It all starts with Fitzroy Lodge. Nearly 20 years ago. Now, I discovered that club when I was going through a crazy period in my life. Like, you know, you go from being a graduate thinking I'm about to take over the world, thinking you're untouchable. Because remember, like, university... You leave university as the king of the little man world. And then all of a sudden you're thrust into the real world. Jobs, bills, careers, ambitions, dreams, all of that. And then you get told, yeah, your dad's not in a good way. And then you've got to suspend all of your plans and do what's best for the family. Now, part of that was every so often I'd get some time to myself. And I wanted to get involved in boxing because like, I'd go and stay with my cousin. And so I found Fitzroy Lodge. And I can always remember that first walk. Number one, you will find the damn place, which is frustrating in itself. 
once you find it, you open the doors and you walk past the two rings. Those two rings haven't moved since I first walked in that door. You walk past the two rings. And I remember you'd have like gloves hanging on the walls and stuff. And then you look to the right and there'd always be the benches there. And then there's the bags. And then you'd finally get to this desk. And at that desk, depending on what day it was, you could have Steve Bunce. Um, you could have Stevie Bunce there. You could have uh, Cornelius Boza Edwards there. You could have uh, Neville Cole. You could have Keith Bristol. You could have Mick Carney. You could have Billy Webster. You could have like six or seven pretty seasoned guys, guys who see through everything. And you got to get to that desk before you can get to the changing rooms. And you'd get there mixed up. What are you doing here? Who are you? And you tell your story, you explain why you're there. And he's like, are you looking to box competitively? I was like, uh, just want to get good first and then let's see from there. And he's like, you done it before? I was like, yeah, yeah, did it a few times up at Brendan Ingalls place in Thomas's and well it was Unity back then. And you know what ends up happening, right? There's always a phone call made. Because when you say something like that, you're like, oh, now I know this. I'm like, Mick's got every number in the book. So he gets on the phone and he doesn't tell me till after, right? So he goes, right, go and train. Yeah. Gives me a pair of battered old, like, they're like six ounce gloves, right? And that was my first training session at the lodge, and I trained. Finish up, he goes, how do you think that went? It's like, felt terrible. Um, not in shape, not sharp, but I'll get better. And Mick was like, I don't know if you will. I didn't know if he was joking or not. I was like, what? So no, I don't know if you will. Maybe boxing's not your thing. And now I realize he's rung through to Sheffield, and they're like, nah, he's more of a rugby player. He's like, maybe rugby's your thing. I was like, ah, motherfucker. And all that saved me was that Billy Webster liked me because me and Bill had done some work on the pads. And he's like, he listens, he does as he's told. He's got a good left hook on him. Why not let him come back? And then that was it. And then, like, in, like I've never broken my connection to that club ever since. And once I was in, and I can remember, like, a prime example of this, like, like just the, the level of honesty required in those sorts of places, I can remember... Like, no one believed I used to be a troublemaker in my younger years, or even up until that point, to be fair. And they're like, nah, you never, you know what I mean? And yeah, I'm not going to say who it was, but they're still at the club now. And like, you never done none of that, mate. You never done none of that. And I said, no, no, I did. I don't don't need to lie about what I've done. And then randomly, guy walks through the door coming in. First thing he says is, Terry Chapandama, is that you? And I look up and I see that it's my mate Kinney who I've known since I've been in England, right? So the gym's packed. Bear in mind, the gym's packed, yeah? So this guy stops the, stops the whole session. He's like, no, 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 no. We're going to find out today. So they interrogate Kenny. Like, how long have you known him? I've known Terry as long as he's been in England. I'm one of the first people he met. I'm like, okay, good start. And he's like, look, this is what he's been telling us. And then yeah, he, he, he lists out the things that I've said. And Kenny was like, that's not even half of it. That's, that's not even half of it. If he's told you he's done that, I can vouch for him. He is that sort of guy. You, you have no idea. And the whole club start laughing now because they're like, oh, he really is. Okay. And after that, I was like, okay, this feels like home. And it was always hard for me because I had to work away and I had to do stuff. And I, I used to resent 
working away. I used to resent missing time at the lodge. And it wasn't until you had things like working from home, which is like probably from 2008 onwards. So I knew that I could be at home on a Friday. And if I managed my day properly, sneak out, come down and see Mick, sit and have a chat about life. Like I can remember I was going out with, with this young woman and I met her. I met her cause she was at Oxford university. So I met her out there. Right. And she'd gone to a really good school. I think it's called Benenden in Kent. Really, really good school. Oxford university spoke like princess Diana. Right. So I'm like, perfect. So I get with her and then she tells me who her family is. Now I'm not really au fait with some of these Southeast London families. So I, so when I see Mick, I say, Mick, going out with the girl, she's invited me to a family barbecue. She says her family are, and I said the name of the family. And, <laughs> and he, because he wasn't really looking, he was listening, but he was doing other stuff. And he stopped, stood bolt upright and went, what have you got yourself into? I was like, what do you mean? So he tells me about the family. I'm like, but we don't hear about them. And he was like, they're that powerful. I was like, ah, okay. And... And I remember just going, yeah, I should be all right. Like, do you know what I mean? And he's like, I know a few of them. So if you say you're connected to the lodge, you'll be all right. And he was spot on. Barbecue. Yeah, they said, yeah, like a bit of boxing deal. I was like, yeah, yeah, where are you? Fitzroy Lodge. Good as gold after that. And I think we were together for four more years after that, before life get, gets in the way. But it's little things like that. That you need in life like you can get lost in life like the work thing like i go to the gym after a rough day at work and then make make new what i needed so mick would be like look go and do three rounds with so-and-so and And once i got that out my system calm as hell um the other thing that never gets talked about with mick and this is why mick was different to a lot of boxing people well not a lot but i think the best trainers in london those great guys were always about more than boxing. And Mick always took an interest in what I did for a job. Always took an interest. Because I'd see him every morning. I'd be getting the, the bus to Waterloo because I had to get the train out. And Mick would always drive past at the same time every day. So we, always, we could always check that we're both doing what we're supposed to be. Like if he, if he didn't see me in the morning, he'd always pull me up and go, where were you on this day? I might say, look, I was away with work. I was in Munich, for example. And he'd be cool with that. But but he always took an interest in what I did. And one of my favorite ones was I came in one day. And this is like in that last year of his life. So this has got to be in about March. March 2011. And I've just been told you're going to go to Wales and stand up the capability to handle all these PPI claims that are going to come in, right? And like, I'm like, who the hell am I? And I remember going down to the lodge, just sitting down with Mick, boxing users out as always. Uh, Buncey might have been there. I think he was. And I'm talking to Mick. I say, Mick. They're going to send me to Wales. And he's like, why? And I said, so there's this new thing yeah, where they've missold loads of financial products, mostly insurance, 
and they have no idea who they sold it to, how much that person paid. They basically messed up all the paperwork, but they have to pay up because they can't fight these in court because they don't have any evidence to support their case. And it, it basically is a mess. And they want me and my team to figure it out. And I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And he's like, when you when you go when you go be up, that's like Monday morning. And he was like, and he just said, pick three things to get right on Monday and start from there. And that's what I did. And based on that, just real like real success there. Like that's one of those career successes you take pride in. Um, you can add to that the stuff we did around digital banking. Mick used to love that idea like I'd always talk to him about some of the innovation stuff we were doing like yeah you know do a project with Visa Mick and you'll be able to pay for everything with your phone you have everything in your phone and he'd be like mind blown and then the other stuff what else will we talk about we talked about my work tech like he loved sort of jazz and stuff like that and I did as well I remember towards the later part of his life there was a show called Treme and it was about New Orleans and that sort of jazz sound out there and we used to just talk music all the time. Like that, that punctuates my time with Mick, however many years it was. He'd come in, tap me on the shoulder. He's like, tell I've got a new CD. And he'd be like, I'm not going to play it just yet. I'm going to let you get warmed up. Let you do a bit of skipping. And then when I see you're working hard in the bag, I'm going to play it. And there's one that he played. And it started off with Curtis Mayfield's Give Me Your Love. And I still train to that song now. And it was like, yeah. And you know, like, like, and Mick, Mick knew because I really love my music. And Mick would be like, "Yeah, I know he's feeling this." Or sometimes he'd be a bit more like he move it to James Brown, the big payback. But the music in there was always insane. If you ever want to know why David Hay still uses McFadden and Whitehead, right order, yeah, ain't no stopping us now. That's a Lodge anthem. Everyone that's been through the Lodge in the last twenty years knows that song would come on towards the end of a session. You'd always hear that. And that was like your, we're going to survive this one, guys. We've made it. We've made it. And that's why that song is so important. It was uplifting because you're like, well, only another 100 reps to go and we're good. But I say all of that to say, everyone should have somebody in their life that they respect unconditionally. And in return, that person should be able to identify the things in you that make you good. Mick, was, that was his gift. Like, Mick knew I'd walk into the gym and Mick knew I needed competition. Like, I wouldn't train hard unless I had a point to prove. I wouldn't spar well unless I had a point to prove. And he just, he just come and he go, look, he go, look, tell. I was here the other day and they were talking and someone said, you can't jab anymore. And then Mick would be like, I went in, I would try to set them straight. They just didn't want to listen to me. And then I said to Mick, but Mick, it's your club. Why don't you ask them to leave? He's like, well, I could ask them to leave, but we also need them. But the important thing, Tell, is they said you can't jab. And I tried to defend you. They weren't having any of it. And I said, he's going to be here soon. You tell him. And, and he'd always do that. And I'd know he was getting under my skin and I'd still bite. But it brought out the best in me, that competition did. And I realized sometimes that's what you need. And all of these little things, and everyone will have their own stories around Mick. And I just remember the, 
that last year, 2011, where, especially as you got later into the year, summertime, you're like, something's not right. And I just like, and I'd learned this from being around my old man. I said, let me just maximize my minutes with Mick. And I'd sit with him and I'd talk. Like, I wasn't one of the tea drinkers, unfortunately, but I'd sit and I'd talk with Mick about everything. I'd ask him questions. Because I, I remember saying to him, I might get into coaching, and he laughed. He actually laughed. I don't think he laughed because I wasn't good enough to coach. He laughed because he understood the, the requirements of it. And he's like, he's like, if you coach, how are you going to go out at night? If you coach, how are you going to do your networking? If you coach, how are you going to do late nights at work? He's like, he, I remember him saying this. He said, boxing's a very unforgiving sport, whether you're a fighter or a coach. And he said, it doesn't love you back. And I remember, I said, but Mick, you did the 1972 Olympics with the Canada team. You did this, you did that. Look at all the people you've discovered. You something like David Hay. And Mick was like, I remember him saying this. He said, if he had to do it all again, he'd do it differently. And that's what, that was the advice he gave me. He said, only give to the sport what you're prepared to lose. Don't let it ruin your family life. Unless you're getting paid from it, don't let it ruin your family life. Don't let it ruin your friendships. Yeah, it's just a sport. And I remember him saying that at the end. And, and I'd always ask him about David. Because that was the one, because I'd be in the gym when ITV came or whoever came to, or Satanta came to ask about David. And Mick would always do the interviews and he'd always be diplomatic and polite and kind and all those really good things. And I'd say to Mick, how do you feel? Because he, he might have been the golden ticket. And, and I said to him, think what you would have done with him versus what Adam did with him. And that always hurt Mick because that's what he wanted. He wanted to take David as far as David could go. Now, whether David would have been supportive of that, I have no idea, if I'm being honest. And it's not for me to comment on. But that, that was something that, that hurt Mick. And I don't think Mick got over that. I don't know. know, There's a lot of talk that people say, ah, David thought he was too big for the club. I don't think it was that. Mick was upset because he was like, I think I've lost him. And he would probably known that way before they fell out. Because now, now that I coach, I know when you start to see little things that indicate someone's head is elsewhere. But just all those sorts of things. And you don't get guys like Mick anymore. And I've said all of this because, like, when I wrap up, I'm going to play the episode that Steve Bunce recorded um, the Thursday after Mick passed. And not for any other reason, then, I just want there somewhere to be something that says, actually, there's a tribute to Mick Carney out there, if someone wants to listen. But when I think back and I look around now and I look at the people who are coming through, and there are loads of clever kids coaching, by the way. Yeah, they know all about their warm-ups. They know how to stretch their hamstrings. They know about building, you know, bulletproof knees. And they know about time under tension. And they know about periodization. They know all of this stuff. 
but they can't produce boxers that are good. They don't understand the fundamentals. Mick did. Um, like, you'd, you'd be stood with Mick watching sparring. And just the stuff that he was observing, it's a lot of the stuff that I've just absorbed now. Because I'd always just be there, like, let me just soak all of this up because I may need this one day. And he'd notice, look, he's falling over himself because he's trying to punch with his hands, not his feet. And all these sorts of things that I've now picked up on. Um, in terms of understanding the game, like how boxing works, I'm going to give you a perfect example of this. If you go back to 2009, Enzo Macronelli fights Ola Falabi. I think that was for the WBO interim cruiserweight title, right? And so, so Ola, I think, would have probably shown up at the lodge before me. We're the same age, but he was there before me. And I think Mick was like, thanks, but no thanks. For whatever reason, I don't know. I know Ola had a, a rough time growing up. So Ola goes off to America and boxes in America for about five years. Then disappears for three years. Like, I didn't see hide nor hair of him for three years. Comes back. I think he's fighting in Germany. Uh, randomly fighting in Germany. Meanwhile, in the UK, Frank Warren's rebuilding Macronelli and going, we're going to go after Marco Huck for the full WBO. But they had to fight Ola. Um, God knows why. I think Huck might have been injured. So it was like, fight Ola Afalabi, then the winner will fight Marco Huck. Afalabi irons out Macronelli. Irons him out. Like, wiped him that. <laughs> Go and watch that knockout. So Ola comes in with the belt. You know, you get the belt in the briefcase. He comes in with the belt at the lodge. And everyone's coming, oh, wow, you got a belt, man. Congratulations. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ola comes in with the belt. And when he leaves, Mick goes, that's the worst thing he could have done. And remember, at this point, this is 2009, I don't really understand the game game. And he goes, that's the worst thing he could have done. I said, why? And he's like, tell, he hasn't got a promoter. He hasn't got a manager. He wasn't supposed to win this. Frank had plans for Macronelli. He was meant to go, was he? You meant to go fight the German. And I was like, yeah, okay. It's like, now look. Yeah? Instead of having a, a big British promoter and a big German promoter putting on a show together and making a load of money, that German guy is basically going to have to put on a show like Frank just put on here. So that's two shows that don't add up to what it would have been if it was Huck versus Macronelli. And, and Mick said... They will never forgive him for this. I was like, what? It's like, and Mick said, you got to know your role. There's certain people you're not supposed to be. I was like, oh. And that's when, like, I started to understand the game. And it was true. If you look at Olaf, I'll be, look at Olaf's career. He should have been a world champion, a full world champion a couple of times. But when did you see him fight in this country, apart from that Macronelli fight? Never fought Bellew at Cruiser although he could have done. Never fought any of our really good cruisers. Just got X'd out of British boxing, like Isaac Dogbay did. X'd out of British boxing. And that's when you realise what a cruel sport it is. And I remember Mick going, Mick was like, he would have made more money losing to Macronelli than he will from winning. And I went, what? And he went, yeah. And those chats were invaluable. Being there on a Friday, when it was Stevie Bunce, it was Mick, uh, Maloney 
uh, Ed Robinson might be in there, like Eddie Lamb might be in there. There's all this kind of group of people just talking boxing. I'd just be sat there taking it all in going, okay, that's how that works. That's how that works. And all of this stuff, and hopefully me saying all of this starts to give you a context for how I've become who I've become in the sport because this is quite hard to talk about actually, but I think for all of us, all we ever wanted to do in a boxing context was make Mick proud. One, one of my mates asked me this question and he said, if Mick was still around, would you, would you have been at the lodge? And I said, no. I was like, if Mick was still around now, I'd have gone to the Lynn and I'd have grafted. I'd have made sure we had a club at the Lynn that was beating the lodge. Not because I disrespect the lodge, but because I know that's what Mick would have wanted. Like Tony Burns went off to Repton and made miracles happen over there. That's what Mick was about. Like, you can start here and once you're ready, once you've absorbed the values, the standards and the principles of the lodge go out there and make it yours and I said yeah I'd have gone somewhere like the Lynn who knows maybe another club maybe not all stars maybe maybe Dale Youth and I said I would, I would have wanted to be competitive with the Lodge because that's what Mick would have wanted which makes my decision to go back in 2016 even more baffling actually on reflection well why the fuck did I do that but come back to the original point you know, when I still talk to guys like Adam Martin, Eddie Lamb, Ed Robinson, um, Martin Welsh, Danny Davis, and I see all of these guys still involved in boxing. Johnny Harris isn't involved in boxing, but he's acting. And, you know, if we need an acting link, we've got Johnny Harris. Um, it's, you're around really good people, man. I'm still talking to guys like Linton, Simon Rose. Um, I said Danny Davis and Martin Welsh. Um, I just look at all of these guys who are still in the sport doing something. Yilmaz Mustafa, one of my favorite people, um, one of Mick's favorite people as well. Like, loved him. Why? Because he's Lodge boy and man, man and boy. Ah, Charlie Harrison. And you look around and it's a legacy that doesn't really get bettered by many other clubs. There's probably about another six or seven clubs in the country that have that kind of legacy. You're talking about us, Repton, Rotunda, maybe the Solly guys in Liverpool, feel free to confirm. Um, you might have Collarhurst and Moston up in Manchester. Um, that was Michael Jennings's old spot. The Ingle gym, obviously St. Thomas's. Um, and there might be a handful of others, maybe Empire with Sanagar, a handful of other clubs where you look and where you go in a sport, you can trace a lot of people back to that one place. Like you look at our generation, David Hay, I want to put his brother James in there as well because, you know, he floated around. Uh, Smallsy, like people my age, Martin Welsh, Danny Davis, guys who all went on to be all right and good people. And before us, guys like Craig Stanley, the generation before, Craig Stanley, Eddie Lamb, um, Nigel Travis, look what he's doing now. And I love that about the Lodge, that so many people doing well. Uh, Guy Williamson, chairman of the British Boxing Board of Control now, the ex-Lodge boy as well. But every year I get to this point and I always ask myself, am I making me proud? Am I doing enough? 
in a boxing sense. And I always give myself like a B, B minus. I could be doing more. But if you're involved in boxing, you're a coach, you run a gym, you run a club. If you're not setting yourself that standard, that standard that people like Mick set, and I see it now latterly with guys like Sid Khan, Mickey Delaney still got it. Um, you know, those old school guys where it was exacting standards. I can give you another example. Anyone that's played rugby knows if you're training twice a week, you're not washing your shorts between Tuesday and Thursday, right? You're just not. You'll change your tops, you'll change your socks, whatever. Your shorts, it's not unusual to train in muddy shorts. Muddy shorts, muddy boots. And I remember showing up like that once and Mick said, you can't come in here like that. I said, why? And he, was, and he, he broke it down and he said to me, and I live by this now, he said, you see when you come in with dirty kit like that, it shows people you don't care. And I was like, but I do care. He said, no, 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 no. It shows people you don't care. Yeah. And he said, next time, next time you come, make sure your kit's clean. Make sure it's ironed. Yeah. Look presentable. And I didn't understand what he meant till I did it. Yeah. So when you're ironing your shorts, you're ironing your shirts. How long do you think that takes? Seven, eight minutes from when you get the ironing board out, get the iron warmed up, put the water in. You might put some fabric softener in there or, you know, that's that kind of comfort smell fresh stuff. You might do that. But all that time you're thinking about what you're going to do. How am I going to warm up? You're visualizing. You're, you're priming yourself for the training session. And so I'd do that. I'd pack three sets of kit. Yeah, I'd have three sets of kit all lined up. And that organization started to filter into how I approached boxing. And I was like, ah, oh, he was right. And then I flipped it around. And from a rugby context, I started using cleaner kit. And I felt I played better. And not because like clean made me a better athlete, but it was that extra eight to 10 minutes of psychological prep that gets you in the zone. And it was all those little things that I don't think get talked about enough in boxing. And it's a long way of me saying the rest of this episode is just Steve Bunce now narrating the aftermath because for a lot of people, it's not going to mean anything at this point. They'll stop. But for those who understand what this game is, they'll be able to connect with what's coming next and go, that's what the sport's really about. If you're not a world champion or whatever, this is what the sport's about. It's about those human relationships, those friendships that won't go anywhere, those bonds. Like there's certain people I know I can pick up the phone to simply because I knew Mick Carney. And so they know if I was good with Mick, I'm a person of good character. It's, it's an automatic, like, do you know what I mean? It's like a visa, a visa of quality. And I hope, whether, you, whether it's boxing, whether it's life, I hope everyone's got that sort of person that they listen to enough because of the standards they present. Like I've said many times, the thing that made Mick Carney great wasn't what he taught you, it was what he showed you. Jim always pristine you do always see Mick just mopping up if there's too much sweat on the floor he'd mop that up he'd sweep it was always clean the ring was always pristine everything was lined up it was never a mess Mick was always well turned out pristine sharp um never cut corners on anything 
I mean, just didn't cut corners. I mean, his whole thing was just do it right. Yeah, it's the easiest route long term. And all these things. And so on a day like this, when your head scrambles and you go, if only he was here now to see what boxing was about, what would he think? He'd have probably stepped away at this point and left it to others to run. Um, it's sad. And the sad thing is, I'm going to leave it on this point. The sad thing is, a lot of the names you're going to hear mentioned in the next 27, 28 minutes are great human beings. Many of whom I still speak to now and still give them a hug and say, how you doing, mate? Good to see you. Respect, love, all from being part of that same thing like Javan Young, all those sorts of people. Grant E, um, the guy that gets mentioned, Jazz Towner, who, another interesting story. Um, the sad thing is, none of them come back home. And maybe I'm doing this as a, a final clarion call to the guys at the lodge to say, listen, we all need to come back as a family. And we need to rebuild that because we've now got what I call old lodge and new lodge. And they don't talk to each other. Apart from a handful of people like me, Lint and Cy, Rygate maybe, we connect the two. But it should be seamless. There should be no gatekeeping between people who, who have the lodge in their blood. That's probably a good point for me to, to hand over to, to Mr. Bunce. Hopefully he doesn't sue me for this. And there is a serious side to tonight's show as we celebrate between now and 9pm the long and very successful life mm, of boxing. Mm, boxing legend Mick Carney. 50 years he was at the Fitzroy Lodge gym. Wow, that's going somewhere. Working with thousands and thousands of boxers. I want your Mick Carney memories and your thoughts on fights and fighters and losers and cranks and liars. He knew them all, Mick. Anyway, whew. All in all, I think there's something for every single person in the business of boxing tonight. Welcome and enjoy. And call me on 0207 224 2000. Oh, yes. Last Saturday, Mick Carney died. Mick was involved with the Fitzroy Lodge Amateur Boxing Club in South London in a railway arch near the War Museum for over 50 years. He worked with thousands of boxers during that period. There were world champions, British champions, European champions, amateur champions, Olympians and thousands and thousands who never won a title, boxed for England, or made a million few quid as a pro. So, hmm. So, have you, you know, to be honest with you, we want people to get in touch tonight. We want people to call tonight. We want people to email tonight. Because we want to make this a celebration of Mick's involvement with the sport. I'll be taking calls from anybody with a memory. Call me 0207 224 Before we move on, here's a clip of Mick talking about the importance of a much-needed donation for the lodge. Steve, we don't get a penny off of anybody, you know. Uh, they're very good at talking about schools and colleges and academies and all that, where the money's going. But, you know, we're a bread and butter club in Lambeth since 1908 it was founded. You know, without you, your Placid Gonzales and St James's plays, there wouldn't be any Fitzroy Lodge. There wouldn't be any Fitzroy Lodge. Well, Mick Carney's gone earlier this year, Billy Webster. Died. The Mick and Billy had been together for about a, uh, about 108 years combined. I tell you, it's been a win double, a bad win double, hasn't it? Well, we are gonna we are gonna deal with calls, and I'm gonna be trying to read some emails and texts out throughout the show. But um, I want to call my first guest up now, a guy called Nigel Travis, who boxed for Mick for many years at the lodge. Nigel, are you there? Nigel. <laughs> you trying to get 
trying to get hold of Travis, and Travis then answering the phone. Yeah, who's that? Is Travis not there? No, it's Colin here. How are you doing, Colin? I thought we had Travis on the phone. They put <laughs> Nigel up. How are you, Gooch? You, you okay? Yeah, very, very well, Steve. Let me, very let, me, well. let me just introduce you. This is Colin Neal, former European police amateur boxing champion who uh, knew Mick very well. In fact, Colin, were you there on Saturday when he died? I was holding his hand, Steve. Holding his hand. by people who loved him. At, you know, at his bedside and, and all the lodge people that you could care to mention were around his bedside. Mike Rygate, Obi. Um, Granty. Pop Khan. Granty, of course, Granty. Mm. Never miss Granty. Yeah. Um, and everyone was there and uh, he was at peace, Steve, at the end. That, that yeah. was the main thing. He, was, he didn't suffer. He it, was at peace. He was a little bit angry in the, in a few weeks before that, wasn't he? I think he was a little bit angry that he'd been struck down with it. Did he get over that, do you think, at the end, uh, Gooch? What do you reckon? I think, he, I think he put everything behind him at the end. Um, yeah. Because, and I say that, Steve, because Thursday night, and you know, because you were there at the fish shop, yeah. um, he was he was having his fish. He went home, and when I spoke to him on Friday, he was like a man who'd been healed. He, he was so yeah. fresh and so so full of enthusiasm because he'd got a night's sleep, Steve, that he hadn't had for many many weeks. He got a man, you know, he got yeah. a week's sleep, um, a night's sleep, and he was absolutely. That's because they gave him some serious painkillers on that Thursday. That's how he managed to get through that fish restaurant strip. Yeah. Right, Colin. Listen, I'm going to move on. Thanks for calling up, mate. I wanted to. Uh, it's nice to have someone who was right there at the end. That's um, Colin Neal. There now, Nigel Travis is on the line now. Nigel, how are you? I'm all right, Steve. I'm all right, thank you. You, you still, you still, you're not still mourning, are you? Yeah. <laughs> As much as I can do, yeah. Because yeah. um, he wouldn't be very, very happy important. if you're mourning for more than about two days. You know that, don't you? I'm just going to tell no, you No, of course. So it's obviously it's a big wrench. He's played a big part in my life and spent a lot of time with him. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's something that's very painful. But it's not one to be moaned about. It's not what it's not to be uh, mm. to be sulking about. It's just to, to be celebrated and, uh, and smile about. That's what he would want. And that's what we talked about before you went. We had a... Uh, we spoke um, at length on the Wednesday night. Wednesday night was a tough night. Yeah. Wednesday night was a real tough night. Yeah, I heard you up. I heard you stayed up all night with him. He couldn't sleep. Didn't sleep a wink. Yeah, couldn't sleep a wink, and it was in it was in pain. It was it was a, uh, traumatic. It was an experience that I've ever had. Yeah. But it, it was um, it was good for me to be there just so I could I could share a bit of the burden if I could and just try and lift his spirits. And it was he was in pain, but it was it was a tough night. But he got through it. Yeah, he got through it because he needed to. Um, uh, put some demons to bed uh, yeah. at the lodge. Um, she went down on the Thursday to the committee meeting, sorted out a few things. Then we all met yeah, him in the fish Yeah, we went shop. down there, and, and it was and it was positive. It wasn't yeah. uh, you expected it to be hard, and but it was hard for him physically. Um, but as Colin just mentioned, he seemed uplifted as soon as it was it was done. He seemed at peace, and that's that's what he wants. That's no, what he would want. Nigel, can you can you tell? Because a lot of people listen, lots of cab drivers, lots of other fight people. Most of them can't. They're sending me emails and texts. They can't come on. Could you tell us when the funeral will be? The funeral will be uh, on Thursday, Thursday the first, first day mm. of December. It will be at eleven forty-five mm -hmm. uh, at Beckenham Crematorium. Yep. Uh, uh, sorry, Beckenham Church um, at uh, St Edmund's Church. It's then a private um, family uh, ceremony yep. at uh, Beckenham Crematorium, and then we're going to go and have a good drink. Uh, a good drink of tea. <laughs> yeah, good drink of tea. Uh, good drink of coffee. Could, he could drink some tea. Listen, Nigel, thanks very much for holding it together, and I'll speak. I'll see you next Thursday.
Oh, God bless Steve. Take uh, care. Nigel Travers who boxed him. Now I'm going to try and read out. So John Harris called up. These, the, he used to box for the Fitzroy Lodge. He won a junior ABA title there. And he's the actor. He was in uh, This Is England recently on TV. In fact, he was nominated for a BAFTA. And he said, I'd like to express my love for Mick on your show tonight, Bunty. I'd known him since the age of 11 and won a title under him. I grew up in and around Lambeth. The man was an absolute inspiration and a guiding light in my life, both in the gym and for many years after I left boxing and entered the world of acting. I saw him as a father figure because he set such a good example. He was the greatest. That's a tribute to Mick Carney from John Harris. We've got uh, some more people coming in. We've got Grant Davis coming in. I'm going to try and read a text I got from a young kid called Joe Van Young. Okay, this is, um, this is a kid that um, is trying to get to the Olympics. He's uh, been boxing for Jamaica in the Pan Am Games and he went out to the World Championships. So he's trying to... We're trying, he's trying to get to the Olympics. He says, hello, Steve, it's Joe Van here from the uh, Lodge. Uh, I'd like, uh, I'd love to call up, but I find it hard to talk about, Mick. Well, that's fine, Joe Van. Leave me to do the dirty work then. So we're all at the club listening to your call. He was like a father to us all, an amazing man, and not only helped us develop as boxers, but also as men. He was probably the only man I ever really trusted, and we all miss him dearly. No cutting corners now, as I know he's always watching. The spirit of the club is as strong as ever, and we have all come together. Mark Rygate is doing a great job. Can definitely still feel Mick's spirit in the gym. Joe Van, thanks very much for that. I got through it, didn't I? I understand why you couldn't read that out yourself, boy. Don't worry about that. I've been joined in the studio by uh, my by former Fitzroy Lodge amateur boxer Grant Davis. He's with me now. Um, Granty, uh, welcome. Thanks, and you're you're like a regular on this show. You've been on more more parts of this uh, BBC London than most people <laughs> in your position as the, the king of the cabbies, as we call them. Um, uh, first of all, Granty, uh, yeah. they're listening at the gym. John Harris sent uh, called up. He couldn't come on. Um, Travis, I didn't think, was going to get it get it out of him. You look like you've been crying for a week. Joe Van Young couldn't come on. Jazz Tarner couldn't come on. I choked up at the start of it. I know. What a bunch of useless old tarts we are. I know. It was amazing. And on, on Saturday when Mickey passed away, yeah. there was about six of us around his bedside. The, yeah, I call them Gooch. Colin, yeah, yeah. Gooch, uh, Pop. And uh, it was quite amazing. It was It was so... I don't know, I can't put words to describe it, yeah. but we was all crying at the end and yeah. we had all the boys and they was kissing Mick and um, rubbing his head and telling them how much they loved him and, you know, it was very, very moving. I don't yeah. think I'll experience something like that well, for the rest not. of my life, yeah. I'll let you catch your breath, Granny, because you've stitched me up completely, coming in here all teary. I, I knew this was going to happen tonight. <laughs> uh, no, the, the one thing, well, <laughs> you know what's amazing is that last week I put out a call on the show. It was your suggestion. Because yeah. you you took him to the fish shop in Central Street. You picked me, picked me Carney up from the gym, took him to the fish shop in Central Street. Yeah. And you said, Stevie, get over if you can. I said I would. And I said, I'll jump in the cab. And you said, yeah, yeah, but put out a, put out a request. I did a put out a request. And about half a dozen call up. And I got one with Tony, uh, who dropped me straight over there. And Tony, it turns out, he was telling someone else later on, and this guy had boxed with Mick in the 70s. So it's a oh. tiny old world. So what I'm going to do now, um, I'm going to just do, I'm going to play a couple of clips from me talking to me. This is one, um, I, I spoke to Mick after, after David Hay had just become the world heavyweight champion. That was back in 2009. I asked him, about David's, I asked him about David's attitude when he was a boy. In his mind, he had it all planned out. Uh, at the age of 15 and 16, it seemed as though it was a bit of a, a bit of a dream, but not to him, not to him. So some people try and make out that David Hayes this very complex character, but that's not really the case, is it? He just likes to get in the ring, doesn't he? Oh, all he wants to do is get in the ring and hurt people, <laughs> which is not bad for a fight. And going in there with confidence, that's the 
we know lots of fighters say they're going to do this and do that. With David O, you know, he wants to get in the ring. He wants to win, uh, and in his mind he will win. So not bad attributes to take into a boxing ring. Perfect attributes. Mike, tell me this, and, and I'm holding my hands up early. I didn't think he could control himself for 12 rounds last week. Were you a bit surprised that he kept his cool for 12 rounds? Yeah, no, I thought it was great. I thought he'd, he'd lose it halfway through and... Uh, Have a fight. Square on, <laughs> as we'd seen him. Square feet, let it go, get caught, fall over it, come back and... And turn it into a war, but no, fair choosing, he'd done the right thing. Mike, you know, there's a couple of points in about round eight when he did dig his feet in, as you say, square on, he wasn't in any stance, and you could just see him ready to load up. Yeah, you know, we've seen it all over the years since he was a baby, that all of a sudden it's get square, look at his mouth, there it is, and (laughs) there's a sheer... Brutal David Hay in front of him. He's not some clean-cut finisher who's going to hunt them down and uh, and do a job on them. It's just sheer aggression. Yeah, and, and, and that's you know I've, I've been telling people this for years and years because people have said, "Oh, I, I think he's a bit botly." And I said, "Listen, the last thing David Hay is botly." I said, "He's mad as a march chair, but botly he ain't." Yeah, yeah, oh no, no, he dig it up when it when it's called for. And the big thing with him, of course, is that, and this is what I've been trying to tell people, especially since last week, you've never heard of him. I've been trying to say to people, now listen, he really wants to have a fight. That was against, he had to fight last week against the way he normally boxes. I always remember, he, uh, I won't say the, the fellow was a British champion anyway. He's trained, he, when Maloney's were trained at the gym, they brought his British champion down, and David was going to spar, he was 17, he was going to spar with a light heavyweight. So while they was waiting for the heavyweight to get ready, this... <laughs> British champion, really nice guy. He said, I'll take him round around anyway. Davey floated around, bing. There he is, he's gone, the British champion. So there's this deep silence in the gym. I said, there goes your light heavyweight sparring. But he said, do you think, I said, he won't even come back today, about tomorrow. So he gets out. But this British champion sat there and had a chat with him, and I was so apologetic, and this young kid, he said, no, he said, you know, you get it on the chin, you get caught, and... He was so nice with David, and but David, in his all his innocence, was looking there like, what have I done? You know, it wasn't something I set out to. And needless to say, the light heavyweight didn't come back the next day, so I was right on that score. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to name that light heavyweight, needless to say. Uh, he has retold the story and managed to get a laugh. That was Mick talking to me uh, shortly after David won the world, uh, the world... The World Heavyweight title, what a great night that was. I mean, if you ever listen to the five live broadcasts of that, you can just hear me laughing in the background because I was, I was laughing my head off because having known him a while, it was just great, great fun to tell. I've got Grant Davis in the studio with me and I've got loads of calls. Keep them coming. You listen to Steve Bunce on BBC London 94.9. It's the boxing album. We're playing a bit of a tribute tonight to uh, Fitzroy Lodge coach and legend Mick Carney, who died last, um, last Saturday. In fact, I got one of the men who was in the room with him when he died. It's okay, he's not on a charge. He was there just comforting him and talking to him as he went. There was about seven or eight ex-Lodge fighters there. In fact, I, I went to the house um, about a week before and I walked in and Frank Maloney was there and Guy Williamson was there, ABA champion from 1985, who kept on refusing Mickey Duff's money and kept on refusing Frank Maloney's money. In fact, every time they offered him money to turn pro, he said no and they increased the offer. They thought he was holding out. He wasn't. Anyway, he was at the house, and then on last Thursday, we had a bit of a last supper. It was obviously a little bit symbolic. We went to a fish shop, and um, then on Saturday, about four o'clock, he passed. And Grant, Grant, you were, you were with him, Grant, he, um, when he passed. Now, on the Thursday at the fish shop, I mean, yeah. apart from being weak and looking frown and his eyes mm. rolling, he was still sharp. I mean, did he, did he maintain that up to the end, Grant? Oh, right to, yeah, right to the end, because before we went to the fish shop, we had, of all things, a committee meeting at the club. Yeah, that's what I heard. It's a uh, proper meeting. A proper meeting, and... Uh, we sort of carried, half carried him Carried up the him stairs, in, yeah. yeah. Put him on the sofa, he caught his breath, and he, 
he like re presided over the proceedings and we made a few changes to the committee and stuff <laughs> and uh, he, he, he was just adamant that he wanted these changes done before he went you know before he yeah, went Nigel, Nigel, Nigel talked about that he said he had some unfinished business exactly. now we got um, we were speaking to Ron Bode in a minute because Ron knew Mick from about 19, well, 1967 or 68, depending on, on our Ron fibs about his age, because he's only 42, so it makes him about six when he met him. But we'll talk about that in a minute. But first, I want to pull up um, one, one of one of. I tell you, this this guy I'm going to call up now. This guy I'm going to speak to now was one of Mick's favourite fighters, and I really mean that. I'm not just saying that because he's on the line. I'm telling you, he was one of his favourite fighters, uh, former multi multi uh, champion. Uh, Roy Connor, Roy, how are you, son? Hello, Steve. Nice to talk to you, mate. Likewise. How are you? Yeah, you, are, are you at the gym? Myself. Yes, we are. Got yeah, off. we've uh, just finished. Just finished our night's training. Good. And uh, just decided to give you a bell just to uh, speak a little bit about Mick. You know, yeah. how sad it is, obviously. Well, what was your first memory, Roy? Because you were at New Addington, weren't you? It was in yeah, New Addington before you came to the lodge for about fifteen years ago. What, what was your first memory, son? Well, the first memory is walking in through those doors, seeing the those two big rings, all the boys training. I mean, it the just smell. looked awesome. And then Mick coming over putting his hand round my shoulder, showing me the changing room, you know, and just helping me to fit into the club, you know, and really being a father figure to me, yeah. basically, you know. Yeah. He always knew the right time when to put an arm round his shoulder or when to kick, you know, up when the stick a boot up the taxi, yeah. And he, he just had a knack for it, you know. That's, um, what, that's what Granty was just saying here in between the, when, we, when we had a bit of travel there. Granty was saying that if you think about it, he was mentoring and looking after kids' welfare, both in and outside the ring, years before people identified it. He was doing it before it was even identified. He was just doing it naturally. Absolutely, Steve. Yeah, I mean, in every way, you know, the boys that have been through this gym, whether they've been champions or not, or just mm. fought for the club, you know, every single one of them would say the same. Mm. You know, he, he had a knack and he had a way of just, you know, being a father figure to him and, and looking after him, basically. They'd come back years later, he always made to feel welcome. Yeah. And there's a saying, once a lodge fighter, you're always a lodge fighter. You're yeah. a family man, aren't you? Know yeah. yourself, Steve. Well, that's exactly what well, In fact, I wrote that when I was doing a piece with David A in the summer, saying that that's the bottom line, once a lodge fighter, always a lodge fighter, even, yeah, if, you, even if you fall out and dislike each other, which often happens. Yep. But, and then one other expression, Roy, and I'll leave you with this, is that, that you mentioned there are lots of kids that weren't champions, if some of them would just box for the club. But the bottom line is no boy was ever bigger than a club. Never. Under Mick. And, that, and that was also Never. an art. Over all those years, all those champions and all those duds and all those lunatics and cranks, he did that. Listen, Roy, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I'll see you next Thank Thursday. You, Will do, mate. And, uh, see you mate. later, son. That's Roy, Roy Connor. If you, um, he was a brilliant, brilliant Southpaw, uh, Southpaw Roy Connor. Now, now, Ron, I'm going to ask you about Mick now because, I mean, when you, you first went to the, to the gym to... When you first met him, I mean, there's some discrepancy about your age. You were about two and a half years of age, and you drove down there. So there's something wrong. There's, someone's fibbing somewhere along the line. So uh, we won't. We, we, you don't have to give the year away. But, uh, okay. uh, so, but, but tell us, cause, cause how did you end up at the gym when you know when you when you ended up there? How did you end up at the lodge? When, when I first came over from uh, New Zealand, yeah. I wound up boxing for Roehampton. Yeah. And base, basically, somebody saw me at Roehampton and said, "You can't box for them. You better box for Fitzroy Lodge." Okay. And I was taken down to Fitzroy Lodge by Tony Mancini. Yeah. Uh, and by a guy called Alfie Hewitt, and that's where I met Mick Carney. Mick Carney was the matchmaker then at Fitzroy yeah, Lodge before yeah. he became before he became the chief trainer. And that yeah. I hate to admit it, it was 1967. 1967. I said that I said that very quietly, so oh, I hope that's not rubbed up. But listen, Ron, there's nothing wrong with having five 18th birthdays, son. Don't worry about that. <laughs> and I don't and I don't blame you. Now, um, 
Yeah, I mean, you, you spent an awful lot of time with Mick at different, yeah, at different yeah, back, you know, I mean, you know, different we, nights you know, and we stuff. We boxed all over the show, went all over the place, and, and Mick was always great with the story, very, very good at handing people, yeah. and he was noted for his wit. He was very sharp, yeah. you know, very live, very sharp. And matchmaking-wise, he, he was... Without, he was the best matchmaker in the country, and no one will dispute that. He was absolutely spot on. Not, not just having guys, you know, he, 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 could, he could pick about where somebody looked like they had slim chance and they would win. He was very good at matching styles, not just records. There's not too many people who can do that. Now, Ronan, will I, will I see you next uh, Thursday? Yeah, uh, de definitely, Steve. Well, I, I only heard today about the funeral on Thursday, yeah. but... Yeah, definitely. Well, listen, Ronnie, thanks very much for your time. And you and I, I'll speak to you over the weekend and I'll see you uh, next Thursday down in Beckenham for uh, the funeral. You, you've got Grant Davis there. You've got to be careful where Grant's sitting because when he boxed, he always wanted to box about, about number eight and had to be in a certain corner. He'll tell you that. So he's, he's probably got a special way to sit he's, in the studio. He's, he's, he has. He's done well. He's, you know, he's managed to get something. I haven't managed to get here in seven years. He's managed to get a cup of tea made for him. Oh, I've actually ha I, I actually wangled for him on a couple of occasions. I rubbed people's names off the board to change the belt order to get him on the number he wanted to be on. He was so super. Granny <laughs> well, always had to go out and make a few quid even when he was a kid. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Ron, listen, it's a pleasure, a pleasure to have you on time. We'll God talk bless. to you in a minute. It's an interesting point that, uh, because people sometimes forget that, you know, Mick was a matchmaker first and foremost. Fantastic. And then, you know, he was a coach and a matchmaker. Mm. But a matchmaker was really his big thing. I remember talking to Neville Cole about that about 15 years ago and him talking about you know how Mick had you know guided him through his ABA runs and also I don't know I don't know if Mick ever talked to you about when he took the Canadian team to the 1972 Olympics he took the, he took the Canadian team to the 1972 Olympics yeah, he was yeah. the coach for the Canadian team mm. Terry Spinks was the coach for the Thai team and Kenny Lynch uh, the, the singer who was one of the chaps was the sort of mascot for both teams and according to him, the security <laughs> at the 1972 Olympics was non-existent. Well, of course, you know what happened in the end. It turned mm. out to be a little bit treacherous. Apparently, it was next to non-existence. In fact, Kenny Lynch, apparently, allegedly, his identity card was, if I'm not mistaken, like a Russian gymnast, a female Russian <laughs> gymnast. There were no pictures back then. So, so anyone tells you that, they're lying through their, their bottom. But it was, it was, it did have a, it did have, you know, so Kenny Lynch, for the duration of the 1972 Olympics, was called like Svetlana Vladimov or something like that. Now, now, good, you know, he's a lovely fella, Kenny, but he's definitely no Svetlana. Granted, I've got one of your old muckers on the line, one of my old friends. Um, there were many people that boxed at the gym, um, and as people have mentioned today, who went on to become uh, big pros, good pros, many that went on to become nothing. Well, this guy did go on to become a very successful professional. I've got Ross Minter on the line. Ross, how are you? Hello, Steve. I'm very well, mate. Thank you. Good, good. You know, well. you know the funeral's next, uh, next, uh, next Thursday. 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 Yeah, yeah, I'll be there, mate. Yeah, yeah, I'll see you all there. Uh, Ross, <laughs> what, what did you think when you found out, or did you, you know, had you been following, you know, the decline slowly? Do you know what? Uh, it, it was, it was one of them. I, um, I hadn't seen Mick for 13 years. Oh yeah. Um, basically, I, um, I went to the lodge and then I left the lodge um, to turn pro. My last amateur fight yeah. was the lodge. I was there for a couple of years and um, had a great relationship with Mick, a uh, fantastic fella. And I, um, it was it was a shame. Because at the turn pro, obviously, you know, people look upon, you know, amateurs turning pro, that, you know, it's sort of like, yeah, let you go sort of thing and, and you've yeah. got to go on and do your own bits. So um, Mick, you know, basically shook me hand, Ross, good luck, best of luck, you know, do you know what I mean? And, yeah. and, and, it, and it great. And um, it was only about, what, I think probably a month ago, maybe two months ago, 
I went down um, to the, no, no, it was about two and a half months ago, and I went down to the lodge. I was passing by, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to pop in there. And I popped in, and there was me standing in exactly the same position where he normally suited and booted up to the eyeballs, you know, like, okay. absolutely smart, you know, mm. as, as he always was, do you know what I mean? And mm. he's standing there next to the ring, and he's looking at the boys sparring, and the, the, the gym is packed down there, and, um, <laughs> and he's there, and he's just giving the odd little word of advice. And I just stood there for a little while, do you know what I mean? And I thought... There he is, you know, so I walked over, I said, hello, Mick. And he looked over and he said, Ross Minna. And he goes, yeah, and he gave me a big cuddle. He said, bloody, oh. you, you're doing well, mate. He said, well done in your, in your boxing, but oh. are you doing well with the promoting side, oh. which is fine. Um, and I, I just went, yeah, Mick, no, brilliant. You know, how's you, da, da, da. I obviously didn't say nothing about anything. And it was, um, you know, it was terrific just to actually oh. know that it still looked at as, you know, being being... You know, I had, yeah. I, I had a great weekend once with uh, Mick and Bill and a few mm. fighters down in Torquay, and your dad was the guest of honour, Ross. Oh, so, right. And your dad was there, and of course, your dad knew Mick because they were both at the Olympics in 1972. Mick was with the Canadian team, and your dad was yeah, getting you said that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, your dad was getting jobbed when he got the bronze, and he, and he obviously should have walked the gold. That's neither in or there. And I tell you yeah. what, it was amazing because your, your, your dad, right, was uh, around, around Mick. I tell you, he was a totally different person. It was just, it was just like shut up and listen, and that was just like it reminded me what fighters are like when they're around the coaches. So suddenly your your dad around him was was oh it was lovely it was. Listen, well, you, you know so much respect. You know yeah. what I mean, and and, and that man he just you know it, it was it was respect, and was respect. and the thing is with him no one no one you know I didn't know what was happening, and then suddenly um I spoke to Ed. Um, Ed Robinson. Oh, I mean, Ed Robinson down at uh, one of the boxing walls, and yeah. um, he said, "Oh, Ross, did you know Mick was there?" I said, "Do you know what? I don't. I don't." I said, "Have you got his number?" And he said, "Yeah." And he, and he gave me the number. And do you know what? I never rang him. That, listen, and I was gutted for that. Let me tell. No. Let me let me tell you something. He won't have held that against you because there was loads of people that did call. Loads of people that didn't. Ross Minter, thanks for you very much for your time today. Thank now, you. I'm, now, listen. I'm going to try and read out this text. I may, it may be a bit emotional for him. It's coming. I don't even know this kid. It says, "Hi, Steve. My name is uh, Jazz Towner." I currently box for the Lodge. Mick Carney is without doubt the greatest man I've ever known. The biggest regret I have is never telling him how much he had done for me and how much he meant. Saying he was like a father does him a disservice because he has taught me more about being a man in the last few years than my own dad has my whole life. Oh, wow. Mick would, would find me work when I was struggling. He would write me references when applying for jobs, and I know his reference helped me get into one of the country's top film schools this year. His pride at me getting in will remain one of my... <coughs> One of my most treasured memories. Training without him this week has been so hard, and I know he's um, and I know he, I know, and I know he's looking down, shaking his head at my sparring. But I pray that I can make him proud, and even a small fraction of the man he was. Thanks very much for that. Uh, Jazz, um, you choked me up on here, but that's okay. Won't hold it against you. We're going to speak now to uh, Grant. He's here. Grant, do you know? Do you know Jazz? Yeah, yeah, I know Jazz. And it's interesting he says that because you know the good fighter Marcus McRae. Yeah, yeah, of course, great, great fighter. fighter. Uh, and I spoke Lost to in the ABA. Yeah, great pro. Yeah, great pro uh, from Brixton. I spoke to him last week when we was going down to see Mick, and he told me something really interesting that I never ever thought about. And he said to me, Mick, he grew up in Brixton, Marcus. You know, run with the crowd. And he said to me, Mick was the first white guy he had ever interacted with, ever. That's interesting. And at that time, he must have been about 17, 18. So Mick down that well, that's, gym, that's really interesting, it just it? broke down every barrier. Yeah, and barrier free. Yeah. That's, you know you know what? That, 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 that is, that Which is, is amazing in, in 20, you know, where we live now, yeah. you know, the times. 
that Marcus actually said Mick was the only white guy he had ever interacted with until he come down the lodge. And now Marcus, through the years of being at the lodge, he, he probably mixes with every, you know, like it is at the lodge, one big family, wow. all different colours, like a Benetton advert is, yeah, you know? Like a Benetton advert, yeah, with stolen shirts. Anyway. Hey, um, Keith Waters is on the line. Keith Waters uh, is the chairman, I think, of the English ABA. He may even be higher, but he, he's known Mick probably longer than I've known Mick. I've known Keith a long time, and he's known Mick even longer. Keith, how are you? Hello, Stevie. Hello, Stevie. Yeah, listen, uh, Keith, uh, first of all, what's your, first, your, your, your main memory of Mick Carney? My main memory of Mick Carney, uh, well, it, it, it's a lot. It, it, to me, he was, he was Mr. Boxing to me. Um, yeah. uh, everything I, he's ever done in boxing, uh, he's helped me. Tremendous. I wouldn't be where I was today without me and his experience and his help that he's given me over the years. Uh, and I, I remember, like, I can name his four top coaches in the country. He had David James, Kevin Nicky, Ian Irwin, Cherry Edwards. He was exactly in the same class as any of those. Yeah. He could have took any of our top boxes to any of the Olympics at wherever. Yeah, and uh, and that's how high he was as a coach. Yeah. Now, Keith, in all fairness, you, you were a bit close to him and also close to Tony Burns at Repton. He's been there like Mick has for a million years. And you, you, the, three, the three of you are a bit of a rat pack, if you don't mind me saying so, without the good looks and the singing and the dancing. <laughs> Yeah, well, you see, they, they, that was true. They did say that. They did used to say, call us the Rat Pack at the end, because we used to meet up together, as you know. Uh, we used to go yeah. socialising together and, and uh, go into the, uh, the fitness down in East oh. London, and, and we had some great times together. Oh. And I always remember, people don't understand that everybody's talking about what a great coach he was, and there's yeah. no doubt about that. But he was so, so probably the one that finds his competition secretary. Yeah. Now, that's, our, that's matchmaker in normal terms. Yeah, I know what you mean now. Matchmaker. Yeah. Well, if you look at the, 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 the when I came in in 1978 as a matchmaker, then yeah. uh, the first person that held me on that, and I was dealing with people like the, the old Bill Bailey's affair, but now Tommy Condon, Con Sullivan, uh, Jimmy Murphy, Tony Burns. Uh, that's the, the, the league I was thrown into. And to me, he, 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 we all talk about Alex, Alex Ferguson. Even Alex Ferguson. Uh, Alex Ferguson, boxing. Uh, yeah. Listen, listen, uh, Keith, I've got so many calls to get through. Thanks very much. I'll see you next Thursday at the funeral. Yeah, I will do, mate. All the best, mate. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thanks for giving me. Sorry, mate. No, listen, my, my pleasure. Now, Granny, I'm going to... Uh, you can sit there. Keith Herschel's on the line. Keith, how are you? Hi, Steve. How are you doing? Yeah, now, you boxed... Uh, you boxed senior and ju soon, no. junior... Just senior there. Just senior. I came from a, I came from a club in Alpington, and... I was mates with a, another boxer there called Mickey Spencer. Yeah, and he won said, the ABAs, yeah. I'm going, up to, I'm going up to the lodge. So after a little while, Spencer said, you know, do you fancy coming up for one, maybe one evening of sparring a week? And suddenly I'm, I'm in amongst people, like, sparring with people like Neville Cole, Ray Katoos, Dave Banks, Dave Banks John Zarashi. Wally Anglis. <laughs> little Wobbly Wally was meant to be on the show tonight. I think he's obviously busy in his, in his yeah. club. But the thing, the great <laughs> thing was that as far as Mick was concerned, you know, it didn't matter. I, I was never going to be in that sort of Premier League of boxers. I was just a good club boxer. But yeah. Mick's sort of attitude was, if you've got the bottle to go up the steps, then you're good enough, you know, mm. to be in this club. Yeah, that's that's the that's the way it was. Listen, Keith, I've got a, I've got about 15 callers and I'm going to end okay, up mate. breaking some arts. I'll see you next Thursday, Keith. Indeed. All right. I've got MC John McDonald on the line now. That, that doesn't sound like a rapper. I'm talking about a proper MC. John Boy, how are you? I'm all right, Steve. How are you doing, mate? Yeah, good, good. Sorry, sorry we came to you so late, John, because I'm, I'm sort of juggling things here. I'm sort of, you know, trying to do a bit of both. Uh, you knew Mick a while, didn't you? 
Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, I knew him for ages. I mean, my auntie had the off-licence on the corner of his, you know... What? Where, where the off-licence? And so, you know, I used to climb out of my bedroom window into the club. I mean, he chased me out of there plenty of times when I was a kid, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I had so many run-ins with Mick Carney, but I could still get away with murder. It was, you know, oh. I should stop there and have a cup of tea with him. I could get away with murder. You know that great story... Steve, about the time when I begged him to look after the Clotty boys. Do you remember? Yeah, 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 yeah the Clotty yeah, brothers. Yeah, he had a brand Ghana. new front door fitted on the lodge. He was so proud of it. It was gorgeous. You know, yeah, this yeah. great big fire check door. And, Lovely. And, and, I, and I begged him to take the Clotties there. And and uh, uh, at the time, they were they were boxing for Frank Maloney. And they, they was living in sort of just up the road in the Elephant. Yeah. And uh, and I begged him, you know, please, please let him train there, Mick. You know, honestly, they were as good as gold. And then, like, the Monday morning, the phone goes, and he's, like, mad on the phone at me. You've done it again. You're in so much trouble. Get down this club. Oh, what have I done now? I turn up at the club, like, about two hours later, and he says to me, look what they've done. And I go to the front door, and where they've turned up on Sunday for training. And there's no I'm one realising there. it's not open. They've scratched with a six-inch nail. We come, you know here. <laughs> I mean, we, 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 we fell out, you know. Well, that's, I mean, the way, that's the way we do it in Bookham out in Garland. Yeah, that's, that's the way right, we do yeah, our business you know, in Accra, you know, you know that? Me and he chased me, he kicked me up the arse, and he chased me around the gym, and I couldn't <laughs> run for laughing. He said, you have never been any good to this club. Get out of this club. And, and when yeah. I got to the door, yeah. I, was, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. I thought, is this the last time I'll ever come in a Fitzroy Lodge? No. And he called me up, and he put his arm around me, and he said, you owe me big time. Oh. And, and that was it. We just walked in the cafe next door, sat down, had a cup of tea, and... But that was Mick, you know, he, he, mm. he, he really did forgive very, very he, quick. He said, in the act of, John, listen, I'm going to have to move you on. I'll see you next Thursday at the funeral. Yeah, you got it, mate, definitely. John, he's here next week. Eddie Lamb's on the line now, box for Mick, and was very close and was, mm. was constantly there, works with some pros. Now, Eddie, how are you? Hey. I'm not, right. I'm not bad, Ed. Where are you? You're not, you're not in a submarine, are you, Ed? No, no, no. I'm, I'm home. I'm home. Ed, what's your, what's your, what, listen, Ed, you might be the last, no, I'll get one more call up. Go on, Ed, what's your main memory from Mick? Um, I've got a little story to tell. Go on, son. Quick. I went out for um, Mick's birthday, uh, uh, Italian, in up the West End. Yeah. Me, me missus, and him and his missus. And uh, we had the lot. We had a free course meal, lovely free course meal. Uh, coffee to works, we had. Yeah. Uh, at the at end of the evening, I stepped off without him knowing to pay the bill. Yeah, yeah, no Only chance. to be told by the manager that it's always been paid. Nah, that's, <laughs> see, now, listen, Ed, you know what? In all fairness, mate, I'm not, I'm not trying to teach you to suck eggs, but you should have been paying that bill the day before to get one over. <laughs> no, listen, but, but not by him, though. No, no not by uh, Who paid it, then? Yeah, anyway, cut a long story. It was, um, it was paid by uh, a fellow who worked in the kitchen. He'd done a couple of nights keep fit training down the lodge, and... Uh, and paid. He the dishes, yeah, it must, must have cost him. It wouldn't have had much change from a week's wages. Oh. But that's the sort of respect the man had. Well, listen, Eddie, I'm going to move you on because I've got another one. I've got Pop on the line. Pop Khan right. on the line. Current cap, uh, club captain who was there with him last week and at the mill of us last week. Pop, how are you? Not bad, not bad, mate. Mm. You, you okay now? You doing okay? Yeah, yeah, getting there, getting there. Yeah. I mean, everyone's talking about the boxing and stuff, but he was just a genuine man. I mean, in and out of the ring, any bit of advice to do with anything, professionalism, birds, whatever, he was there with advice. From whatever restaurant you wanted to go to, what club you wanted to go to. He was knew something, didn't he? Mick was on the dance floor my 30th. He was at Eddie Lamb's 40th. He was oh. at my brother's meal on his 50th. He was at my you wedding know, 18 years ago. You know, the range of people he knew and loved him, the range of backgrounds, that just indicates the man he was. You know what, Pop? You've brought the show to a brilliant end. Thanks, kid. Thank you.
Oh, Popcorn there with the last words on uh, Mick Carney from the caller. Uh, uh, Granty, I'm going to give you yeah. the last words because I'm not going to cry into the news. You're going to do it. Oh, Go on, oh. son. Well, I just think anyone who ever, uh, <clears throat> you know, come across Mick in whatever capacity, they'd be heartbroken like we all are because he was, uh, he was just a genuine bloke. Old school. Fantastic guy. And... Um, you got me going there, and um, and and I think it. Was That's just... what I said. I'm not going to do it. You're going to do it. Yeah, but I'm looking at you crying, and now I feel like it. I just feel that you know, Mickey was old school, and you don't come across people like Mickey in your life too often, and I know it's a privilege for me to have known him for all these years. There you go, Mick. You've been listening to Grant Davis and Steve Bunce and dozens and dozens of people that love Mick Carney. His funeral's next. Thursday. There'll be no sh uh, the funerals next Thursday. Hope you've enjoyed the show. Not been too morbid for you. We've had a bit of a laugh, yeah. even though we're crying. <laughs> See you next week.